Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest on the show today is John Epp, someone I've known since he was literally a baby. The son of one of my lifelong friends, John got involved with alcohol and drugs when he was just 13. Though he drank alcoholically from the start, his constant nemesis was marijuana, amphetamines, LSD, prescription opioids, and ultimately heroin. Divorced when he was only five, John's parents suffered utter helplessness through countless treatment failures. Each non-successful attempt to get John sober, including half-hearted stints in AA when he was just 16, validated the label unlucky that his mother had pinned upon him at an earlier age. It seems that John was always the one getting caught, using or drinking, while everyone else was getting away with it. The realization that he was using in situations where he knew he'd get caught did little to abate the tumultuous whirlwind his life had become. By the time he was living on the streets of L.A. as a daily heroin user, he was sick and malnourished, floundering around death's door with seemingly no way out. None of the turning points John experienced were effective until his mid-twenties, when he finally came all the way in and sat all the way down in A.A. Getting a sponsor and working the steps in earnest for the first time pulled him up from the mire of self-destruction a little over four years ago. Today, John resides in the middle of the program, practicing a true spiritual connection to his higher power and the fellowship. He sponsors lots of men and stays centered in the big book. He's also careful in the way he shares his experience with drugs while he's sitting in an AA meeting, highly respecting AA's singleness of purpose. He has reestablished a close connection with his family based upon the mutual understanding and love that we in the program cherish. As you listen to John's story on today's AA Recovery Interviews podcast, you'll hear the kind of humility that only a life like his could encapsulate. I'm grateful he survived to be of service to God and his fellows. So, for the next 72 minutes, please enjoy my friend and AA brother, John F. My name is John, and I'm a drug addict. Now, when you're in an AA meeting, does that ever get to be an issue? Do you ever say I'm an alcoholic and drug addict? When I'm in an AA meeting, which is rare, I do say I'm an alcoholic. Um, I like to, I respect singleness of purpose. My main fellowship is Heroin Anonymous out here. Uh, it's all out of the same book, um, Cocaine Anonymous as well. We use the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because it works. Like at an AA meeting, I would just, uh, I just say I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. I do have experience drinking alcoholically. I choose not to talk about my drug use at an AA meeting because while a lot of addicts find yeah. singleness of purpose a little bit exclusive, I don't want to be the guy who's talking about, you know, smoking crack under a bridge when yeah. there's a dude who's just trying to get over drinking. He walks in there and he sees this tattooed young guy being like, I was smoking crack and all this stuff. And he's like, I, I don't belong here. And I'm like, you do. And I don't want to cheat anybody from that. So, Well, yeah, and I appreciate your sensitivity to the other members in the room. My feeling about it and everything with regard to this particular podcast is if you got sober in AA, you've got every bit as much right to talk about whatever you need to talk about. Appreciate it. And I don't think I've had anybody 
just say they were a drug addict when they introduced themselves. But it's a, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, um, while I did drink alcoholically and stuff like that, my main yeah, vice yeah. Uh, wasn't alcohol. It was it was all the other stuff, and th- and that was the stuff that that brought me down so far that I didn't know what to do. Well, I'm I'm so glad to see you alive and looking healthy and sounding good, and you've got a, that certain twinkle and sparkle in your eye. You remind me a lot of your dad. You know, your your dad and I go way, way back to, wow. to our college years. And I know that there were years of struggle involved for both of you. And we'll get to that in a little bit. I just wanted to say how grateful I am to see you again. This is great to see you, too. It's cool that you're part of the fellowship. You know, I, I never would have known that probably if I hadn't gone through what I went through. And it's nice that I get to connect with you on this level. When you were first starting to have the problems that you were having, uh, I told your dad if John ever needs me, just let him know that I'm available. Mm. And yet, from everybody I've ever known in AA, including all the people I've interviewed, people are ready when they're ready. You know, there's nothing I could say to your dad that would have influenced what you did. That must have been really tough in the early years, though, for you, huh? Oh, yeah. It's it's weird for me because uh, you know I'm a I'm a black sheep in my family. Yeah. I don't. My family does not have a history of alcoholism. Yeah, there was hard drinkers for sure. Uh-huh. You know, there was uh, people who had problems drinking, but they were always able to you know get over it. And I consider myself a victim of the opioid epidemic to some degree. Yeah, and nobody in my family really knew what to do, and I didn't know what was happening to me either. And there was this huge like disconnect as to you know know, what can be done that that was like my parents uh mission was like what can we do about john like and they and they they cared so deeply right and they did everything they could you know and and saved my life many a time yeah and i i heard about those life-saving times that they were involved i also heard about the times that they were frustrated by the fact that it didn't work the last time what makes us think it's going to work this next time but that's a pretty uh, common refrain for the parents and loved ones of alcoholics and addicts so what is your sobriety date Uh, my sobriety date is august 25th of 2017. that's amazing Long, long time, for me at least. But. Yeah, I know it was. I know it was. And and hearing about you from your dad uh, over the years, it kind of let me know that you were still doing okay. But whenever he told me you finally got into the program, I just said, thank you, God, because I knew it was a good thing. When you look back, can you trace anything from your early life that might have predicted you're becoming an addict later on. Well, you knew me as a kid. Oh, I wanted to ask you, like, did I? Did you, <laughs> you know, that 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 poor kid's gonna have some problems at some point. <laughs> no, I mean, I wasn't around you enough because you were living in Chicago at the time, and I'm in Houston. I think I suffered like everybody else suffered, man. Like the precursor stuff, and I think the only thing that really set me on a track record towards my addiction was when I first started using drugs, and I used them to the extent that I did. How old were you when that when you? first started using? Uh, I was 13. And my first drug was uh, marijuana and Adderall. Uh-huh. I was taking speed and, and pot. And, and I was drinking a little bit too. I was stealing um, wild turkey from my mom and replacing it with water. Uh-huh. But I wasn't really getting drunk off of that. I mean, at first it was for acceptance, right? Because I was becoming kind of a counterculture kid. I was starting to rebel against my parents and uh-huh. wear all black and you know, listen to metal and grow my hair out and stuff. Uh-huh. And so the yeah. natural 
Next thing was I was really curious about drugs and alcohol because it was a world that was completely new to me, you know? Yeah. But from the get-go, man, I noticed this. Um, once, once I put the substance in my body, I can't control how much I'm going to take. So did you notice that from the very first time you drank or while everybody else may have done it and said, okay, I'll do it again sometime, not really feel like they were going to. Did you know after the first time or a few times that you were going to be doing this in the future? Well, yeah, I knew that I wanted to do it, right? Because it was the lifestyle that I was leaning towards, you know? Uh -huh. I wanted to be a rocker. I knew all the rock artists I listened to all smoked weed. And so I, I wanted to do that, you yeah. know? As far as it becoming a problem, I just thought I was unlucky. And my mom told me I was unlucky. She's like, you can't be doing drugs. You're unlucky. Because uh, I got caught all the time, right? Wow. By my parents, by school. You know, the consequences started almost immediately. Were these after your mom and dad split up or was it before? They split up when I was five. Okay. So all this was going on with your mom and your stepfather. And my dad, too. I mean, my dad was very clued in. I've never heard of a mother telling their own kid they're unlucky. What what was behind that, do you think? <laughs> uh, it was around the fact that I was always getting caught. Because I always told her, oh, it was just a one-time thing, you know. Uh -huh. And she would, like, walk in and bust me. And she's just like, and I'd always get caught at school doing stuff like uh -huh. that or with alcohol on me. And um, she was just like, you can't be doing this stuff. You're unlucky. Like, the cops are going to, you're just going to go to jail. Like, you can't afford to screw up. Because that's just what she thought. So you're going to be the guy who always gets caught while other people get away with driving drunk, right? Exactly. And I thought I was unlucky, too, because I was always grounded, always in trouble. And all my friends were using drugs and getting away scot-free. But the difference is they were all using drugs when they could get away with it. Mm -hmm. I was using drugs when I could get away with it, but I also used it when I couldn't. I knew I couldn't. I did it anyway. I you get know? that. And I was doing crazy stuff. My mom and I were about to go out to dinner and I was I had my little uh, marijuana pipe, my little piece. And there was like some residue in it. And I was like, well... I need to be hungry before dinner. Might as well <laughs> take a little resin hit in the bathroom. Uh -huh. And I'm like, you know, hitting it over uh -huh. and over. And and then my mom like opens the door. And I'm like exhaling smoke. And she's oh. like, what are you doing? And I'm just like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> nothing, you know. That, it was crazy, man. Do you think from what you know and the other people that you've interacted with, because, you know, you're you're in that millennial group. There are a lot of reasons why people do what they do with the drugs, to feel different or to fit in. Uh, was there a predominant reason why you wanted to continue to do, you know, starting at 13? Was there, was it how you were feeling about yourself? Was it fitting in? What, what was the major driver? Um, it was fitting in. It was a cool factor. Um, also, it was just, uh, I hate, this is when depression and alienation all started for mm. me around 13 is mm. when I started um, having suicidal thoughts and all wow. these things. And yeah. drugs and alcohol were, uh, I mean, I hated being sober yeah. is the best way I can put it. Yeah. Um, and that was, I mean, pretty much my whole life. After I found something that worked, yeah. why be sober? And it was everything to that extent. It was, uh, you know, everything I used was was alcoholically, alcohol, marijuana, um, LSD. I, I for about six months I took uh, acid almost every day. Wow. Um, really fried my brain for a long time. I had a guy on a couple shows ago who talked about smoking crack cocaine 
and how he feels like it, he got brain damage from it, like he got PTSD-type yeah. issues that years later, he's been sober a long time, and it's still affecting him. So, And I've heard of that with LSD, especially people having trips later on. Yeah, you can damage yourself. It really was just I was seeing tracers, like, yeah. uh, like you know, stuff just when you have, like, a phone or something, and it's dark. I still have a couple things, screws loose up here even after four years, but... I get that. I'm lucky. I'm lucky that's all it is, right? considering how much damage I did to myself, like, that's it. So you were you were unlucky, and now you're lucky, which is good. Lucky or blessed? Extremely. I, I'd say blessed. I, I like blessed. I would say blessed. I would say blessed. Lucky sounds like I'm doing it. Blessed sounds like a power greater than me is doing it. That's exactly where it is, man. You know what you were talking about with, with feeling depressed and everything else? I've suffered from clinical depression probably my whole life, but it wasn't diagnosed. Mm-hmm. until I was about 32, 33. I'd already been sober. But all those years that I used pot and hash and did pills and drank, it, it took me out of that feeling, although alcohol is a major depressant in and of itself. It just it presents itself differently, though. Mm-hmm. These days, whenever I tell people about clinical depression, everybody knows what the blues feels like, right? But clinical depression is the thing that wants you to not get sober. Yeah. You don't. Why get why get sober if you can choose the way to feel? And uh, that's how it always was for me. Was that way for you, too? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I just thought that this was my this was my life when when things started to get bad. I mean, they they were bad from the jump. But when I started getting into harder drugs um, and experiencing some bad stuff, Uh um, that was just where I was going, man. Uh Just on to the bitter end, you know as uh, ungracefully as that is. I just thought that that was just my lot in life after a while. Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing about it was as different as most younger people think that their lives are with drugs and alcohol, you know, when I was in, when I was 20, in my 20s and 30s, the slogan that was popular at that time was, uh, you know, live fast and die young. Uh, yeah. That was almost something people aspired to, but the drugs sure made it a lot easier to do. Alcohol made it easier to do it for a longer period because it didn't take quite the toll on one's body that some of the drugs did. I know, I know it was that way for me. Yeah. So if, if you wouldn't mind, John, would you kind of walk us through the, the, the progression from the first time that you got high at 13 until a point at which you got some help or... You, you tried different treatment options and so forth, and, and what, what the consequences were along that trajectory. Yeah, totally, man. started for me at 13, uh-huh. smoking weed, taking Adderall. I wanted to try everything. I yeah. was one of those, like, eventually, you know, but I had my lines, you know, uh-huh. no hard drugs. I just want to smoke weed. I, I love these hallucinogens, blah, blah, blah. I want to expand my mind. Um I didn't really know what I wanted. I was just doing stuff that I thought was cool. And uh, I experienced consequences very early, um, Mm. partially because of very overworried parents, because neither of my parents ever uh, did drugs. My mom never touched anything. Um, She was very adamant about that. (laughs) Uh, She was offered a joint once, and she said she ran away screaming. And I'm just like, cool. (laughs) I didn't get it from you. (laughs) Well, and I can tell you something that you might not have ever heard before. I was a daily pot smoker in my entire college career and for many years after. I mean, every single day, starting in the morning and throughout the day, every day. And mm-hmm. whenever I got together with your dad, I always wanted him to smoke grass with me. And 
you know, there uh, occasionally, occasionally he would, but uh, you know, it was such a disappointment to me that he wouldn't get high with me. But he he had his own reasons for not wanting not wanting to do that. We we, we drank a lot of beer together. Though. He told me he, he's like he's like I don't like not feeling in control, and it's so <laughs> weird because my dad's such like kind of he's like a ooey ooey kind of like <laughs> Buddhist artsy guy. Like you'd think he would listen to jazz. Like you'd think he'd be smoking a bunch of weed, but he never did. So. Uh, that was me, though, man. That was me. Yeah. Put on some good jazz and just chill out. You know, that was the way to do it. Okay, so so you said some of these consequences started to roll forth. What what happened? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was my parents worrying about me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but my my drug use was like escalating to the point where, like, freshman year of high school, I was getting fucked up at school, like mm. physically fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, I hung out with all the druggy kids and they brought in like a water bottle full of gin mm-hmm. uh, one day. And I remember like we were all taking little nips off of it. Mm-hmm. And once alcohol started to work its magic, I, f- I grabbed that bottle and I was like chugging it. It's like, I need more <laughs> of this. You know, yeah. it was crazy. It was like, there's that voice in my head that says, wow, this feels great. I bet it would feel better if I had more and then I have more and it feels better and it just yeah. keeps escalating. It, like there's no downside at the beginning when, yeah. when I was first discovering these drugs, I was like, it just keeps getting better and better. You know, I don't see what's wrong with it. That's not too much to dissuade you from doing more, is it? Exactly. Yeah. It was like a, it was uh, honestly a spiritual experience. You know, those first couple of times mm-hmm. it was like, I've never felt like this in my life. Would you say that every time you used after that, you were chasing that particular feeling? I think I've got that feeling a couple times with different substances. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was that complete release. Yeah. Um, and all I cared about was get, that's just what my using looked like. Uh-huh. It was that release. And all I cared about was getting as high as I possibly could, as much as I possibly could. I get it. Yeah. You know, I got in trouble a couple times freshman year and, uh, my mom was having problems with my stepdad at the time. Um, and so uh, they divorced and we moved. And I had to go to the high school that my dad worked at so he could keep an eye on me, um, which was just, oof, I was not happy. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, I kept rebelling and lashing out. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, at this at this other high school, you know, I showed up okay for a bit and then... Uh, I got into acid and I got into dealing drugs um, and uh, I was just going down a slope. You know, I knew that drugs were going to be a big part of my life. I didn't think it was going to be my whole life. I didn't really think I was going to die. But I knew that I was going to try everything. Um, And Mm. at 16, um, I started using heroin like very, very early. Yeah, what was that experience like the first time? What, did you give it any conscious thought, or did you just full bore ahead? My friend told me that he tried it, and some of his friends tried it, uh-huh. and they said uh, it was really great. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, just be careful, man. And uh, I mean, our school was suddenly like senior year; it got infested. I don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. Part of the opiate crisis was at that time. I mean, right. I didn't even touch uh, pain pills before that. Uh-huh. It was just like immediately we had heroin and we're just like, OK, let's give it a give it a shot. And honestly, um, I didn't really fall in love with heroin at the start. Mm-hmm. 
I loved it psychologically because I, you know, I'm uh, Kurt Cobain is like my idol, and it was just like I was headed in that direction anyway. Uh-huh. And it's like if I'm going to be a tortured artist, I need to do this. <laughs> yeah. But you know, between that and the LSD and all this other stuff, uh, you know, it it was just adding it into the mix. It didn't yeah. really take a firm hold until a, lo- a couple years later. Um, mm. But I was always fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. How long did you stay at, at your dad's school? I finished. You graduated from there? Barely. I had to I had to take summer school because I failed. Did you get with a whole different crowd of the same type of people there, or were you still hanging with your old? Actually, uh, the funny thing is, well, when I moved there, um, the friends I made um, were all straight edge. There's a punk subculture of kids who don't drink or do drugs as an act of rebellion. And there were these straight edge hardcore kids, and they were like, dude, you shouldn't do drugs. You should hang with us. And like, I did. And they were really fun. And we ate pizza and stuff. And yeah. And then uh, like senior year, they all just started doing drugs <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> with me and us. They're just like, hey, can you? Uh, and I'm just like, yeah, I'll get back into that life with you guys. And so we all went off the deep end, which is really funny. So there was a point at which you were straight edge and not doing? Yeah. I mean, I didn't really subscribe yeah. to it, but there was like a, a little bit. Uh, things got really bad for me. Uh, my mom caught me with with heroin, needles, um, and I was on a bunch of LSD and didn't really know what was mm. going on. Um, so I started going to an outpatient treatment center after that. Um, it's like five days a week. It was awful. How old were you when that was going on? I was 16, I think. And I started uh, going to this thing and we did groups every day and you learned about triggers and stuff like that. And I think we had to go... I don't even think we went to any meetings. It was just like we had to go to this community center and it was me and a bunch of other kids and we sat around and, you know, it was just a thing that I had to do. Knowing what you know now, did anything that they said get through to you at that time? Uh, no. Yeah. The steps were on the yeah. wall, uh-huh. right? I think, it, I think it set the pattern of I'm going to be going to a lot of these. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it didn't really occur to me at the time. But, you know, I was experiencing consequences. And then after that and after the whole heroin acid fiasco i kind of stopped for a bit um because i my straight edge friends were worried about me and then i've stayed sober for the rest of that year until mm. my straight edge friends started smoking weed and then we you know did that so i mean at that time if i really wanted to stop i could so that was right a, that's looking back that was a self-will thing then huh yeah i hadn't lost the power of choice yet by huh. any means uh-huh. you know i was i was just able to get off and not really think about it and not miss it because the uh-huh. opportunity wasn't there you know I get it. So at 16, you're in, you're in a outpatient type uh, program. Yeah, little stuff, nothing major. So you quit for a while, but then you went back to grass and then kind of eased your way back into what you were doing previously. Yeah, I mean, not even eased. Like, we were just, we were balling cool from boy. the get-go, man. As yeah, soon as I, I started can't. smooking weed again, it was all day, every day. You know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I was taking acid again. I was tripping mushrooms again. I was doing stuff to an insane extent, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, nothing too hard at that time. But um, it went back to my using. That's what it looks like. It's I want to be as high as possible, as much as possible. And so I would get as high as I possibly could in order to perform any functions I needed to perform throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And then sometimes I just get high and skip school because, you know, I don't want to do that. You know. Well, I know you're you're a pretty smart guy. So would you say that you were a functional drug user? No. So when you got when you got stoned, you got stupid and messy and all that kind of stuff, huh? 
I mean, I, I was just, uh, I was a mess, man. And also, I was going through, uh, teenage years were so hard, dude. I was going yeah, through hormonal sure. stuff. Honestly, I feel like I was more mentally stable smoking crack and doing heroin than I was in high school. Because <laughs> in high school, I was, I was homicidal. I was suicidal. Oh. I was just a, I was a wreck. Because I had all these yeah. hormones going on, and yeah. I was high all the time. I'm, I'm applying for college for the first time in my life, and uh, cool. I had to print out my transcript, and I saw senior year. I'm just like, <laughs> good God, dude, you're a mess. <laughs> I just didn't do anything, man. It was bad. I'm not functional, especially around school. I can work, I guess. But I yeah. mean, at, at the same time, it's like as my addiction progressed, I matched my lifestyle to it. What kind of jobs can I have that I can be fucked up for? You know, yeah. Yeah. pretty much making it easy on myself. What kind of feedback were you getting during this time from your folks? Oh, they were they were sick. They were they were scared to death. Lots of lectures, lots of uh, tension because I didn't want to stop. You know, I was waiting to get out. I want to get out of there. Yeah. L looking back from your position today, from what you know and what you've been through to get to where you are right now, was there anything in particular that they said to you at that time that could have made the big difference for you? Or were you just not listening to anything at that point? I wasn't listening to anything, man. Uh, and I yeah. also didn't know. I didn't know that I, in order for me to live a normal life, I was going to have to stop everything. Yeah. Because I, I, I was like, okay, heroin's bad, sure. Cocaine's bad, sure, but I still want to keep smoking weed. And even if I didn't want to keep smoking weed, I didn't even touch on drinking. Mm -hmm. It's like I thought I was a normal person. And I was going to be able to drink eventually. My visions of college were me, you know, partying with people and mm -hmm. like, you know, drinking and stuff like I did in high school every mm -hmm. once in a while. You know, it's like I just thought that was going to be my life. Thought I was a yeah. normal dude. Well, and especially when you're hanging with other people who are kind of doing the same thing that you're doing, to any degree, you, you feel normal around them. And if they're yeah. the people you're surrounding yourself with, then normal has a new definition, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it's like, you know, I knew some of the stuff I was doing was extreme, right? But I expected, yeah. you know, I fully expected to clean up my act. You know, I expected, oh, I'm going to party through college or whatever. And then when I get older, you know, maybe I'll smoke grass every once in a while, like my friend's dad's and, you know, just kind of hang out and be a cool, you know, pot smoking dad or whatever. Like I had a, I had a plan. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I was wondering, did you have yeah. a particular plan or goal or age in mind? Oh, yeah. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew yeah. that I had a vision that my life was going to look a lot like my parents did, just with a little more sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know? Like, But uh -huh. I, didn't, I didn't expect to be sleeping under a bridge in three years. Well, two years at that point when I was graduating, um, you know? <laughs> this is from high school you're talking about right now? Yeah, yeah, like senior year of high school, you know? So what, what happened? Um, I went to college for about a month, um, mm -hmm. and I was asked to leave uh, because mm -hmm. I got really fucked up on a bunch of over-the-counter meds um, mm -hmm. and kind of lost my mind and attacked my dorm mates and mm -hmm. peed my pants and... I had to go to the hospital and I got sent to an inpatient treatment center. It was after that was after a month of college and I didn't show up for any classes. I just smoked weed the whole time. But I took uh, I think I took like 50 Benadryl or something like that. I don't remember. I was just trying to get fucked up. You know, it was a Tuesday. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, I'm going to get fucked up. I read somewhere that if I take enough Benadryl, I'll see some cool shit. 
And I did that and I blacked out and I woke up in the hospital. Did they have to pump your stomach and everything or? I don't remember. I was, I woke up as soon as they put the catheter in and then I passed out. When I kind of came to, I was on my way to my first inpatient treatment center a couple months after I turned 18. Against your will, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I kind of resigned to the fact that I, I could understand that I really fucked up, you know, yeah. and that I wasn't going back to college, but um, I went. So that was more about what your parents wanted for you than what you wanted for yourself. Oh, totally. I yeah. just thought it was a, I just thought I'd just taken too much. Whoops. You know, but, you know, they found heroin and, and needles in my room as well because I was trying that again. So didn't take hold yet. I wasn't a junkie yet, but I was dancing with it, you know. So how long did you do the inpatient for? 60 days. And then when you got out, was it just right back to the same thing? Uh, I moved in with my dad. You know, I dropped out of college, right? right. So I had to move uh -huh. in with my dad and join the workforce. You know, I started working mm -hmm. at Target. Um, it was a really miserable time, you know, and it, it looked like, you know, uh, he made me go to, that's when I went to my first AA meetings. <laughs> I love it. What, I love it. What did you think when you went to your first AA meetings? Well, I'm a know-it-all and I, I know what's going on all the time. Mm -hmm. And in treatment, in order to graduate the treatment center, I had mm -hmm. to memorize, I had to say the 12 steps from memory. I think they even gave us books in there because I remember this book. You know, I remember reading a little bit of it. Uh -huh. But the only thing is I had, to, I had to read the steps off the wall. I was like, cool. And when I was out, I'm like, I know what this is about. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, I start going to these AA meetings. It's at this church on a Wednesday. I'm mm -hmm. like this young you know, little shithead in there and a bunch of, you know, probably like youngest age was like 35, median age was like 40, small group. Mm -hmm. And every week it, it was a new step mm -hmm. was the topic. And uh, every week I would I would share because I thought I knew what it was about. And I'd be like, amends? Yeah, it's important to, you know, make amends to those, you know, that we harmed and stuff. That's uh, part of the program i know what this yeah. is about like i've never done it and these guys i remember after i've been going a couple of weeks one of these guys mm -hmm. was like hey man like you should check out our big book study on this night i think it would really help you out and i was like mm -hmm. nah nah i know how to read like get yeah. out of here like, <laughs> i know what i'm doing <laughs> well they tried man it was great <laughs> so you were really pretty resistant in the beginning yeah i mean i thought i had it figured out you know, yeah. I wasn't at a point where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, obviously, I, I was at a really horrible place in my life, but I had this idea of where I needed to be. I get that. And I was just trying to get there, you know, yeah. where everything was going to work out. And that that looked like moving to Los Angeles. I got a, I don't know, a bug in my head. I was like, I need to move to L.A. And that's where I'm going to sort my life out. You know, so what what did that look like? And how old were you were you when you moved out there? Uh, I wasn't even 19 yet. I got mm -hmm. kicked out of college in October, and by June, I was driving to Los Angeles after a okay. trip to the psych ward in between there. Again, caught tripping balls on a bunch of drugs. Um, you know, mom threatened to send me back to treatment. I said, if you take me back there, I'm going to kill myself in front of the doctor. And so the doctor sent me to the psych ward. I was in there for two weeks. Sounds like you had things pretty well manipulated at home then, huh? Oh, yes. I mean, I'd, I'd now, you know, and then my parents were just like, we don't know what to do. And then I'm like, I'm moving out to California and that's what I'm going to do. And so 
and my parents, you know, they wanted the best for me. So they helped me, you know, I wasn't running away from home. My dad helped me find a place to live. He's like, I'll help uh-huh. pay your rent. Like, yeah, they believed me and I believe myself that this is going to be good for me, that yeah. this is where I needed to be. I convinced them and I convinced myself that once I move out there, that's when my life's going to start. You know, would you say that your dad and your mom were enabling you and you might have caught what you needed to get into recovery sooner had they not done that? Or did that actually save your life to allow you to get to the point where you could finally get sober? I don't know. I mean, I don't regret anything that happened, man. They were loving me. They were loving me. That's all I mm-hmm. could do. I didn't expect anything more of them. Sure, probably some of it wasn't. It was all enabling. As uh, well, they soon they soon got schooled in enabling at the at a treatment center I went to, and then they stopped that. <laughs> so, uh-huh. um, but at the time, man, it was like they were just loving me the only way they knew how. You know, yeah. they knew I was a sick puppy, and I was like real out there. Uh-huh. But, you know, they were just doing what they could. I don't fault them for it, you know. So, John, take us from that point. You're out in L.A. Can you fast forward it to, to the point at which you were starting to hit bottoms that you knew you needed to do something like stop? That's where it starts, dude. L.A. is where I got into heroin again. Um, uh-huh. And this time it got its hooks in me. You know, this is the point where when I did it, all of a sudden it was like, it wasn't like getting high. It, I didn't feel high. I felt right. I felt normal. Like everything was great. I worked harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was making pizzas. And I, when I got high and I went in, I loved my job. And I made more pizzas than anybody else. And I was like gung-ho, like earth, wind, and fire was playing in my head. You know, just like mm-hmm. it was a, like a beautiful bopping day. And that's how it started. And then I started experiencing the withdrawal symptoms when I couldn't get it. And I didn't know what was happening. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I was using the needle like very, very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And by the end of it, I was down to like 120 pounds. Um, and I'm 6'1". So I looked really bad. And uh, my dad came out to see me and he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And so I got a call, actually. I got 12-stepped by a friend of mine from high school. And he says, mm-hmm. come out to Texas. There's a treatment center here. Um, he was all about the program. You know, he mm. like, asked me the qualifying questions. And he was mm-hmm. like, you know, do you think, uh, do you have trouble staying stopped? You know, do you have little control of the night you take? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, dude, like, take it from me. The 12-steps work. And it was very much like a, uh, like a Bill and Eddie story. Because this was a friend of mine who the last I had heard from him was a phone call a couple months ago where he was living on his own and taking like drinking like six bottles of Robitussin a day. And he said that he told me he was like, he's like, I think I'm Jesus, dude, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this guy's going to die. Like my friend's going to die. This is probably the last time I'm going to talk to him. And then he calls me sober and was like, this stuff works. And I'm just like, and he's like, how are you doing? And I'm like really bad man to be honest really bad i was driving home from work i'm like i'm doing real bad man i'm hooked on dope i'm sick all the time i'm broke i don't yeah. see a life for myself out here well that sounds like a real real moment of tr- of self truth and somebody you could talk to about it who would accept it for what it was yeah and he's just like dude i promise if you go to this treatment center they talk about the 12 steps like i've never heard before mhm and uh we can live sober, man. Like it's doable. And I'm just like, 
okay, screw it. You know, I, I was just, uh, at this point I knew like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I was like 2000 miles away from my parents. Like I was mm -hmm. just like, I'm just like, things are not going well, dude. I need to, mm. uh, I, I need another vacation from this hard life. Right. So I go to treatment, you know, uh -huh. I was in there for four months, man. And out here in Texas, dude, I never heard the message like it is out here. Yeah. Um, at the treatment centers and stuff like that. I mean, this place wasn't even licensed. It was a, it was a recovery center. So no insurance, mm -hmm. no nothing. And they just, they brought you through the book and you went through all 12 steps, did a fifth step, all that stuff. Uh -huh. I had no idea what this program was about, you know, until I got all that. Right. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on BigBookPodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. How about the emerging fellowship at that time? Did do you feel like you were you were getting a different type of support when you came to Texas than you had gotten in the treatment centers? Oh hell yeah. I mean, for one, it was you know, like they talk about I don't want to like quote the book too much, but I love it. <laughs> and uh, feel free when they're talking about, uh, you know, the the cement which holds us together. Uh -huh. One of those elements is we've been through a similar problem. And that's mm -hmm. what it was like at every treatment center. I got real buddy buddy with those guys because we were all suffering and we knew mm -hmm. what it was like. But we didn't have that second element. We didn't have a common solution. So we didn't hold each other together. Or if we did, we ended up getting high together. And when I came here, I had both of those things. And I'm like, this is a little bit different. And I think the big difference is that treatment centers can get you sober, but it takes a program like AA to help you recover. Oh, yeah. And to help you build a different life. Getting sober is easy. It's staying sober that was impossible for me. You know, uh -huh. I've gotten uh -huh. sober a bunch of times. I've said, this is, this is the last time I'm doing this or, you know, waking up in the hospital. It's like, I'm never doing this again. I'm sober now. And then, well, yeah. And, and one of the ironies is that, and it was this way for me, whenever I stopped drinking, uh, I would tell myself if I can stop for a week or two weeks, I'm probably not an alcoholic because an alcoholic can't stop. But you know, that, that was, that was a lot of self-deception going on there. And, yeah. uh, and almost, almost like, and then I had a guy on the show the other day say something like when he was ready to drink, he went into the big book and found the ways to do it. You know, when they, when they talk about go have a couple of, go ahead, well, a, a couple this. of drinks, you know, try some controlled drinking. Yeah. Try it and stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So you were there at the, the place there in Texas for four months. Yeah. How old were you by this time? I was 19. Still 19. From this point on, it's more of the same. But I mean, yeah. this was a big watershed moment, right? Because this was the first time I had found recovery. Right. And I had been taken through this work by people who had been through it themselves. Mm -hmm. And I started to see that, okay, maybe 
I can live sober. This is the first time like that foundation was shaken. You know, I'm willing to believe that there's a higher power. Sure. And mm -hmm. I look when we go to these outside meetings. There's a bunch of people my age there and they're mm -hmm. all talking about God. And I'm like, what is this? I've mm. never. And I was like, you know what? I can. This could work. You know, mm. Mm. Um, a lot of it was because there's a lot of cute girls in there. So I was like, I could stay sober for yeah. here. But it was just <laughs> like I found like an in-group, you know, and also it was like there were a bunch of big book thumpers, you know, at this yeah. treatment center and everyone who got out. They always carried a book. And yeah. This is how many sponsees I had. And it's yeah. just like, uh -huh. you know. It's only the first 164 pages is like this kind of in club. Oh, yeah. yeah. People were just kind of shitty about it. But I yeah. loved it. You know, I'm like this is a real. AA. And so. So you, you gathered up some hope from that experience that may have helped you down the road from there. I saw a way out, man. Yeah. I saw that this stuff could work. Uh huh. This stuff works for people. I mean, obviously, at this point, I wasn't convinced it was going to work for me. You I know, yeah. but. I saw that it worked in other people. This uh -huh. is like a hope shot, you know? And so, but it only works if you actually do something right. Um, mm. You know, I get out, I go to sober living. And so I have this change of environment. I'm around all sober people, you know? And uh, four months after I got out of a four month treatment center, living in sober living, going to meetings multiple times a week, filling mm. out my sheet. Um, one morning I couldn't take it anymore. You know, what was mm. I doing? I did not have a sponsor, right? Yeah. I had not made any amends. Um, I was not actively looking to sponsor people. I wasn't praying. I yeah. didn't have, looking back now, I did not have a relationship with a higher power, which is the big thing I was missing. Yeah, so you weren't doing the work. I wasn't doing the work. And really, I mean, the work is to connect me with God, and I didn't give a crap. I yeah. I was like, I will pray when you want me to pray. Like, I, I'm not like this, like, hardcore atheist. No, screw that. Like, I'll do it. Yeah. Um, but I didn't actually have any sort of spiritual connection. And first chance I could, you know, I tried to buy drugs a few times out here. I got ripped off. And I'm like, well, fuck uh -huh. it. I'm just going to – I had a job. And I'm like, I'm just going to fly back to L.A. And so I did that. <laughs> I woke up, huh. left the sober living, took a cab to the airport, bought, like, a, on a whim, you know. I think uh -huh. I planned this out in a day and a half. Wow. Got on a plane, landed in Los Angeles, shacked up with a girl I knew for a uh -huh. couple days. Um, uh -huh. I had about 500 bucks, spent it all on dope. We got high. When the money ran out, she kicked me out, and then I was living on the street. Hmm. I was out there for a couple months. And, uh, you know, horrible stuff happened to me out there. I saw some horrible stuff happen. Um, I'd mm -hmm. never been in a situation like that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was hanging out with some real deal alcoholics, man. We were just stealing. I was hanging, it was me and, a, and this 45 year old guy named Dennis. And we would just steal beer from the supermarkets, steal like mm -hmm. a 30 rack and then just get plastered every night. You mm. know, what a lifestyle. It was dangerous, dude. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of bad stuff out there. I was in, a, I wasn't on Skid Row, but I was in a little suburb north of it with a pretty hobbit homeless community. But, uh-huh. Uh, you know, lots of, you know, rampant methamphetamine and heroin use, lots uh -huh. of violence going on in that community. Um, mm -hmm. I felt just alienated from society because here I am living on the fringes. I, you know, wasn't showering. I was walking to meet my buddy Dennis under a bridge with a couple 40s I stole. Yeah. And uh, 
these 20 somethings come jogging by me because the bridge was on like a jogging trail uh-huh, in California. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a dude and these two chicks and they come jogging by me. I hear the dude say kind of loudly to those girls. He's like, man, I wouldn't want to run into that guy in a dark alley. And I yelled <laughs> after them. I'm like, I'm only 19. I just made bad choices. <laughs> this is where I'm at. And they just like ran off. <laughs> but I was just a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. Would you say that your environment there, especially living on the streets, was validating the way you were just feeling about yourself in general at that time? The weirdest part, dude, is when I was drunk, when I would yeah. get plastered, I would get on a payphone and call my friends back in Texas and say, I want to come home. When I'd sober up the next morning, mm-hmm. I'd say, I got this. I can do mm-hmm. this, which mm-hmm. is crazy, right? This yeah. is the disease in the mind, man. I was like, convinced I could make it work. I was so prideful and selfish mm-hmm. that I'm going to figure this out somehow, or I don't even care. I just want to get high and yeah. and just die out here, you know? Yeah. So you were really into self-will at that time. And oh, yeah. 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 You know, and so, uh, during, during that, my grandpa passed away and all this stuff. I wasn't home for the funeral. My dad mm-hmm. called me at the homeless shelter and told me and I was just like, I don't know what to tell you. Sorry, I couldn't make it, bud. Like, mm-hmm. like I'm in a bind. Um, and the reason why I was homeless, too, is because this is my parents got talked to by some very smart former alcoholics and addicts who worked at the treatment center. And they said, look, cut him off. You mm-hmm. paying for his cell phone, you buying him flights home. My mom bought a cab and like a flight for me at one point. Mm-hmm. He's like, you doing any of that's not going to help him. You mm. need to cut him off and he'll come home when he's ready. And so they did. And my mom said it was the hardest thing she ever did. I remember talking to your dad at that time. And, you know, it, it's a heartbreaking thing for a parent to have to do. But you're right. The, that's what the Al-Anon program is all about. I can't imagine how that feels because, I mean, I don't have kids of my own, but I know yeah. how deeply my parents care and love me. And I have no idea what it must have been like to know that I was living on the street and they had to just cut off contact with me and not help me. It was crazy. Well, I, rem- I remember when, when your dad and I would talk, uh, I would bring to the surface some of my own experiences with alcoholism and drug addiction that he didn't know about. Because, I mean, we haven't lived in the same place for a very long time. But, we, you know, we stay in touch. But, you know, I would say things like, you know, just you need to just turn it over and, and let God handle it the way God's going to handle it. And that... M- may result in something that you don't like it may result in something that looks like a miracle but either way you got to stay the course and i know that he was he was bitter and he was he was saddened as was i uh but mm-hmm. understanding what was going on you see yeah. that, that's the difference yeah. you know an alcoholic who's working a good program looking at a guy who's still suffering you're thinking that's actually a good thing because the more he suffers the closer he may get to the bottom yeah. at which point he hits a moment of clarity that he decides that he wants what we have exactly dude get an experience man and also knowing all the stuff i knew about aa right yeah um, it was like I was gaining experience, you know. You got into recovery when you were how old? 26, 25? Yeah, this time getting sober, I was 26. I had been 26. around recovery since 19, though. You know, okay. I came back. I got scholarship to treatment. I went there for two months. And actually, after that, I stayed sober for a couple of years. Really? What was that like for you? Um, 
I gained a lot materially. Uh huh. But I do did not grow spiritually. So you still weren't doing the work, were you, at that point? I was keeping up appearances, right? Uh-huh. And I think I was at a spot. I had a first step yeah. truth coming back. And my first step truth was I knew in my heart of hearts that uh-huh. I didn't want to smoke weed. Right. I didn't want to drink. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do heroin. So these reservations about smoking weed and drinking, I don't have those. I'm going to be okay. Hmm. I just need to stay away from heroin, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess at that point in my addiction, it worked. You know, hmm. after mm-hmm. being homeless and just being traumatized by that whole ordeal, um, mm-hmm. even only two months, man, some yeah. shit can happen to you out there. And, you know, I still have like stuff I'm working through from that time in my life because when you're on the street, you're constantly, you're not safe ever, right? But yeah, I'm sorry you had to go through that. I'm happy I did, man. I get to help people who also did. So that's that's the whole point, right? I That's why I say I wouldn't... I'm glad I don't have 10 years sober like my friends do because through all this experience, I was able to help somebody else. But So you were able to see where you could get sober from the booze, you could get sober from the pot, you could get rid of the other things, but you still wanted the heroin. I still wanted the heroin, and I was afraid of it to the point where it's like, as long as I stay away from it, Right. As long as I move to Greenland, you know, Uh I'm going to be fine because I knew my truth and I did learn some truth. Mm -hmm. My first step was I don't want to drink. I don't want to smoke weed. I don't want to party. I just want to do dope. Um, I know that all looks like dope. And so Mm. with that and I went to meetings regularly. But again, I didn't have a sponsor. I lived with my best friends in the whole world who were sober um, and I was able to eke out an existence, and it was an okay one for about three, three and a half years. But during this time, I didn't really know I'm making, you know, I'm running on self this entire time. And sure, when we get sober, good stuff happens, right? We're yeah. all smart, intelligent, capable people, even when I'm running on self. I started a career for myself in the mm-hmm. tech field without having to go to college. I yeah. was doing all this cool stuff. And, um, it built up to the point where um, uh, I was getting really cocky about it. and So you were sober this whole time, the three and a half years, but you were still really scared of, but were you doing, did you have the opportunity to do heroin during that time? So the, the funny thing is, you know, during this three and a half years, I started unknowingly putting myself in these positions, right? I was getting cocky and I met a uh-huh. girl. I met a girl who used to do heroin, but smokes a lot of weed now and does, you know, bars and stuff. And she would smoke weed in front of me like, I am cool with this. This is fine. Yeah. I'm sober. I I know I don't want to smoke weed. Right. Yeah. Um, And so I met her and we got into a relationship and like relation and like women in relationships are a whole nother story. Like that's another huge problem I have. Right. Um, I think everybody does. Most of us do. yeah. Yeah. We're maladjusted. (laughs) Oh, quite. She was pretty maladjusted, too, but I don't want to talk too much crap about her because she saved my life a couple times. But anyway, Mm -hmm. you know, I move in with this chick and things are going okay. I mean, I'm living with constant misery Mm -hmm. and our relationship isn't good. We're always button heads and fighting and her drug uses her like uh, Xanax use is becoming a problem because it's just like really irritating. Was that relationship helping you stay away from the heroin, though? Oh, absolutely not. Well, what I'm saying is 
subconsciously I was going towards heroin without knowing it. I was putting myself in riskier and riskier situations. I moved out, right? I was basically walking to the dope dealer's house without knowing I was going there. You know, little decisions based on self till Uh all of a sudden she relapsed on heroin and I found out and she denied it. That's she gaslit the fuck out, which like pissed me off. Like I hate being gaslit, even though I gaslit my parents and friends for years. I'm not doing you're crazy. Um, And so I found a burnt piece of foil in the garbage with some slides of dope on it. And I waited till she went to bed and I smoked those. And then I was off, man, hmm. for another three years. Wow. So I was sober three and a half years. I knew the book backwards and forwards. I'd gone to yeah. meetings every week during that uh-huh. time. And then as soon as I hit that one little piece of heroin, um, I was on a three and a half year run with a couple stops in between. But Did that surprise you? I mean, did you, did you expect that? <laughs> oh, wow. Did you inwardly want that to happen? What was your feeling at the time? I think a little bit because, I mean, I did the heroin. It worked, right? You know? Um, yeah. But I knew I had to get sober at some point. But, uh-huh. like, I had no idea that I was going to be out for another three years, man. I had no idea. I was thinking, I don't know, maybe I'll make this work, but probably just like a six-month run. I hear from people, oh, my relapses get shorter and shorter. And I'm like, well, my last one was two months, so I should be wanting to get sober in a little, you know, in a month. And Yeah, it's like whittle down the length of your relapses until you can get sober. But most people don't survive to that point. Exactly. And, and uh, with this man, it's just like this is that other – you know, another chunk of that first step that I learned the hard way is like, I don't know how long I'm going to be out for. That's why I don't have a slip up in me. Yeah. You know, uh, this is why I was imperative that I did the work this time. So I don't I don't have like a mulligan, you know, yeah. if I get to a place where I'm putting heroin back in my body or anything like that. Last time was three and a half years. Who knows how long it'll be? And I'd be lucky if I died, you know, because the suffering is just unimaginable. This entire that entire time is scary, man. After three and a half years, then you were out for another three years. So six and a half years. Now, were the people, the guys that you were living with, were there still people from the program who you had gotten close to during that three and a half years who were reaching out to you during this time? What were you telling them? I mean, all my friends have about 10 years sober now. Um, Uh I mean, there was times when I was hiding it and they didn't know. I was sneaky. (laughs) Uh And so for a while, they had no they had no idea. And uh, um, until, you know, I moved in with one of them after me and this chick broke up and they started seeing black smudges all over their walls. And, you know, they found out I was getting high, you know, pretty quick after a couple months. But uh, did they kick you out at that point? Oh, yeah, they kicked me out. They told me they held they held an intervention for me and told me how to go to treatment. That was my first intervention. It was by all my best friends. It was crazy. So I went, I paid for a 30-day treatment myself. Mm-hmm. So my parents weren't helping me. And, um, you know, I got out and relapsed again, right? Because, um, uh, you know, I worked the steps in there, but I didn't do shit once I got out. Um, I get it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they would reach out, but mostly they were loving me from a distance, especially when I was going ham, you know? Uh-huh. We would hang out every once in a while, but like, I didn't want to talk to any of them, man. Yeah. I didn't want to hang out. I didn't want to party. I didn't want to leave my bathroom. That was my safe space. 
you know. It sounds like you were sliding down pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, man. By the end of that three years, what did that look like? What did the final days look like before you hit your sobriety day? Um, not horrible, honestly. Really? I had gotten out of treatment. I was in sober living. Uh, and uh, I, I relapsed, right, which started off my last nine-month run. Mm -hmm. um, and in my relapse, I'm, this is where I get this other piece of my first step was I was driving to get high and I was sober and in my mm. head I was like dude this is a bad idea you know mm. what's gonna happen you know yeah. you know like where you're gonna go mm. you know it's not gonna be fun you should call somebody and yet I just kept driving mm. I, I mm. couldn't stop I couldn't pull over and I was I was talking to myself out loud like dude this is a big mistake you know yeah. that's loss of choice man you know was there a time during that period of time, even during that car ride, that you reached out to a higher power or something bigger than yourself to help? Or were you still not at that point of admitting your powerlessness? I wasn't at that point. I think I was mm. I was experiencing my powerlessness in that moment. Oh, yeah. But I didn't think there was a way out, mm. you know, because um, this whole time I had never I had had experiences with God, but I hadn't, I had never really sought. I wasn't seeking I didn't know what it meant, right? And so yeah. um, I went through a nine-month really crappy run. I was living in a studio apartment. I was doing heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, all this stuff, man. Just the needle was running rampant in my life. Uh -huh. You know, me and this that chick uh, got back together, and she was living with me, and we were doing up to all – yeah, of course, you know. We were up to no good. I – I, I pretty much got her to relapse on heroin and she had a fiance at the time and I took that away oh, from her to get geez. high with me. Yeah. I was a good, I was a good dude, you know, just yeah. looking at, looking out for my friends, right? Well, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction are rapacious and, uh, they don't give a damn. No, uh, I was, I was dangerous, man. In the rooms too. I took a lot of people out with me, you know, when mm. I would go out cause I would make friends in there and. We only That's bonded tough. over that first part of the cement, right? You know, we weren't, neither of us were working a program. And then I always would get to that point where we'd be hanging out and we'd look at each other and I'd be like, do you want to get high? And he'd be like, dude, I was just thinking about that. And then we'd go do it. Like, it was wow. crazy, dude. But I, I didn't want to be alone. I always needed a running buddy. That was always my thing. I always had one guy, a friend of mine, we were getting high together and then we would end up ripping each other off, right? Because that's how things go. And then I'd get somebody else. And this time it was, you know, my ex-girlfriend. And uh, So you're living with her. It's nine months. Living with her. Uh, house is infested with bugs. Um, real, real trap house, man. Um, uh -huh. And uh, I'm at the tail end of a run. I was getting free Suboxone from a doctor to taper mm -hmm. off and not be sick. And I had just gotten a new job um, somehow because mm -hmm. um, I was able to eke out an existence. I was a functioning crazy drug addict. I mean, I because I worked in tech and I didn't have to talk to anybody. So, like, I eked out um, and I got a severance package from this place and I blew it all on drugs. And then I uh -huh. got hired at this other spot. So I'm super broke. Uh -huh. I've already pawned a bunch of stuff. And I'm in training at this job who, for some reason, I showed up to work and I showed up to training in a blackout one day and they had to call me an Uber home and they still kept me on because I was smart, like somehow. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but my moment of clarity was so weird. It was just like, cause like, I mean, things weren't too bad at this point. You know, I was in the wall yeah. before things got worse. I was on the precipice of losing everything. And I was sitting on a picnic table outside and, uh, I just thought to myself, man, you are really smart. You are really capable. You could be really good at this job. You just can't stop doing dope. <laughs> that was, that was yeah. it. That was just like at that moment, it's like, I just can't stop, dude. Like it's been nine months, man, it, of this run. It's like, I can't, I can't stop doing drugs. It's so bad. Um, that was a genuine first step for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I didn't know what to do, man. It's like, I just can't stop. And I knew it was going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I think I went and saw like a free drug counselor on a Friday. Because uh-huh. I'm like, I don't want to go back to the rooms yet. And I saw this drug counselor and I gave him my history. And he was like, man, have you ever considered going into counseling? You're so introspective. I'm like, don't blow smoke up my ass. <laughs> I was so mad. And uh, and so then Monday I decided to go to a meeting. Um, and I still count it as my sober date. Um, I know people are different about their sober dates. But on my sober date, you know, I had smoked weed at around noon that day. And I went to Guitar Center to go play some drums and let off some steam. Uh-huh. So they have a drum kit in there that anyone can play. And, yeah. and then I went to this meeting, right? Uh-huh. And I sat down shaken i feel like shit you know i'm like yeah. coming off i was out of suboxone so i was starting to kick uh-huh. and i sat down in this meeting and had a horrible time and listened to people talk and said i'm a newcomer and maybe saw one person i recognized and uh-huh. and i got up and i went home to my junkie girlfriend at the time and i stayed sober ever since that day wow. so i can't i count that as my sober date it was my uh-huh. first because I wasn't high when I got to the meeting, and after that meeting, I stayed sober. So did you get yourself a sponsor right away? It took me like three days. Um, what started happening is I still had my job. Uh-huh. So I'd get up in the morning, I'd go to work. I was just like yawning, the withdrawal symptoms, yawning, shaking. I couldn't sleep. Right. I was sleeping on the floor. Somehow I stayed sober. Wow. I, sh- I don't think she wasn't doing dope at the time. Cause she didn't have any money either, but she was smoking weed and stuff. And I would like get out of work and I'd go play drums at Guitar Center. And then I'd go to a meeting and then come home after she went to bed because we hated each other. I didn't want to talk to her. And How much longer did you live with her? Um, I mean, I, I started going through the work and talking to people. And I think after about it was like a couple of weeks, I ended up kicking her out and uh, helping her move into a different place. But mm. even in those couple weeks, some stru- stuff had started to change. I had yeah. gotten with a sponsor. Um, he was a gay meth head who was like in his 40s. He uh-huh. had like nine months sober. Someone had to come up to me, right, and say, do you have a sponsor yet? And I said, no. And he's like, this is my sponsee. He'll take you through the work. And I was like, okay. Like, that's what had to happen. I wasn't raising my hand. God uh-huh. was just like, here you go. God put someone into your life almost immediately, huh? He put this man in my life. And, and he, and we started going through the work. And it was real simple. He was just like, read, highlight, call me when you're done. And I would do that that night. And I'd call him and we'd meet up the next day because we were both going to meetings daily for some reason I would see it like every day. And so, and that's how I went through the work, man, is I would read, I'd highlight, I'd 
call him. We'd read through it together. Um, since I'd been through the work and read the book so yeah. many times, I was just kind of reading. He's like, tell me what stuck out to you this time. Let's just go yeah. over the highlighted stuff. And so we just talked about it. So your your book wisdom came in handy at that point, but still he had you work through everything the way it needs to be worked. It was new and fresh, man. Yeah, and I was I seeing some new stuff. And I was like, at that point, I was like, oh, my God, like, I lost the power of choice, man. I knew walking into those meetings at the very beginning, I knew two things. I knew I don't want to get high again for the rest of my life. I don't want to do this stuff again. And the second thing is I knew I was going to get high. (laughs) Like when that paycheck hit, it was going to dope. And I didn't want that to happen. I didn't know what to do. And so I I came in with y'all, man, who had found an answer and started doing some stuff. Did he help you break things down into day-tight compartments, so to speak? I mean, because you're saying, I got to do this for the rest of my life. Uh, Whenever anybody asks me the question, am I never going to be able to? And I say, yeah, you can always go back to it. Don't do it today. Did, Did you get that from him? I got something similar. And it wasn't about going back to drugs, really. It was this during my third step. And my second step was awesome, too, man. Mm-hmm. For the first time, I actually made a conception. You know, I'd never really done that before because I'm like, that's dumb. Yeah. I don't want to draw a picture. He didn't have me do that exactly. But right. we talked about attributes a higher power mm-hmm. might have mm-hmm. that I wanted. And so sure. anyway, we did step three and we did it behind the meeting house. And behind the meeting house, there's a Chinese restaurant and there are dumpsters out there. And it stinks. It's just yeah. god awful. No one goes back there. Uh-huh. But we went back there to do our third step prayer. And we kneel in some wet grass. And this is the moment, man. I'm turning my will and my life over to God, right? We kneel in the uh-huh. grass and we hold hands. And he's like, repeat after me. And we do the third step prayer, which I had done a million times before. And um, I always wanted the burning bush, the lightning, all that stuff. Uh-huh. And I'm sitting there. And uh, we get done with the prayer, and I open my eyes, and my sponsor's like, how do you feel? And I'm like, honestly, dude, it still stinks out here, and I feel like shit, nothing's changed. And he's like, huh. good. He's like, good, that's that's fine. And he's huh. like, all we just did was you made a promise to yourself, to me, and to whatever this God thing is that you think, um, that you're going to go through the rest of the work before you get high again. Do you think you can manage that? Just get through all 12 steps before you get high. Yeah. And to me, this like egomaniac, I need to have this religious experience. I need to understand God thing. It was so humbling that it put so simply like, just don't shoot dope before you get through the rest of this work. And I was just like, man, okay. And of course, the rest of that work culminates in one result. Yeah. You know, culminates in in that relationship with a power greater than yourself. Yeah. It was beautiful, man. So how long did it take you to get through the 12 steps? Less than 90 days for sure. Um, Wow. I started having the experience pretty much right after we did that third step. You know, I had my nights where I was hanging out with old using buddies and I was just like, man, like, I want to say fuck it. And then that thought came to mind, just just do the work for once, you idiot. And I'm just like, all right, yeah. I'll do the work for once. Did you change playgrounds and playmates at some point? I mean, yeah, I mean, I didn't have any playgrounds or playmates, man. I had nobody. No one wanted to hang out with me, man. Within AA, I'll bet you built a whole new fellowship, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I also didn't even, I didn't even tell my friends, I didn't even tell my parents I was getting sober for mm. like a couple months until I was sure, right? Mm-hmm. It was probably, I probably waited till I was doing my amends, mm-hmm. which uh, I did in like a week. 
but it was like during my fourth step, like even before the fifth step, like I started to see some shit and I started to see the steps for what they really were. You know, uh-huh. my fourth step isn't just me shitting on myself. These are spiritual tools to get me closer to God. And all of a sudden I was like, I was talking to God, you know, and I was seeing shit and I was hearing things and I was filled with this realization that holy shit, like I don't have to get high ever again for the rest of my life. And as soon as I started feeling that, Mm -hmm. I was like, let's go, dude. Hmm. I hit step 12. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I was done with my work for step 12, I did my reading. I met up with my sponsor. It was Halloween. Mm -hmm. um, And he told me he can't sponsor me anymore because he relapsed. And I was like, what? (laughs) I called you every day my yeah. entire sobriety. This was like you can't sponsor anymore because you slipped up over the weekend. Um, but that's when I learned, man, it's not about the it's not about the sponsor. It's about the work. It's about God. And God gave me a new sponsor that night. Wow. So you didn't miss a beat. I didn't miss a beat, man. And honestly, at that point, it's like in my in my feeling, like I have a sponsor now and we talk, but in my feeling, I feel like once I bring someone to step 12, at that point, I always tell them, I'm like, look, I'm here for you if you need to do yeah. inventory and I'm here for you. But at this point, we're no longer sponsor, sponsee. You're just my brother in recovery. Yeah. So you've sponsored a number of men during your four years then, huh? A lot. Really? That's great. I, I went gung-ho with it. I had in my first year of sobriety, I remember I had 10 sponsees at one point. Um, wow. And it was crazy because I didn't have that long sober, but... The thing that makes it, it's attraction, not promotion, man. And something happened to me and I shared about it in every meeting I could. And every time I saw some sad, miserable motherfucker like myself who Mm -hmm. had raised his hand saying he had under 30 days, but wouldn't raise his hand that he needed a sponsor. I just, well, I was like a shark. I just like walked up to him. I'm like, I'm like, Hey dude, like, what's up? You know, here's my number. Do you have a sponsor? If you don't. Oh, you do? Okay, well, here's my number anyway. You don't have a sponsor? Call me. Let's do something. So you got into service right away. And, you know, you said you only have four years. And I think to myself, Bill Wilson wrote the big book with only four years of sobriety. So it's astounding that you were able to be of service to so many people. Can I assume you saw the direct connection between working with others and keeping yourself sober? That's it. That's it, isn't it? Sometimes that was all I had, man. I'm not going to tell you that these four years have been easy. I'm not going to tell you I've been a perfect AA member for four right. years, uh-huh. especially this last year, dude. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised I made it to four, man. Sometimes like it was so hard. It was all God's grace. You know, it yeah. always is. Yeah. Um, it was just more evident than not over these past couple of years and the adjustments we've all had to make that God is pushing for me, man. Um, and even recently, I went through a really tough time and I was just slacking on all my stuff and not calling my Mm. sponsor and feeling miserable and god just throws like service work at me good for you i just started get all these phone calls like i have this guy who works at this like treatment center where sponsors can come and meet with people and he just started blowing up my phone he's like hey do you got room for a guy and i always say yes i always say yes even if i have too many i say yes because uh i'll never have too many sponsees you know god will make it work out somehow you know, I'm I'm so impressed with your level of enthusiasm about your current sobriety. And just listening to you this evening, I, I get it. I get the spiritual experience or the spiritual awakening, I should say. But I see and I hear your enthusiasm. It has been a tough couple of years for a lot, a lot of people. Thank God for Zoom. 
Thank God for people being able to stay in touch with each other. So you're at four years. Have there been uh, any any particular things that have happened for you that you could not have possibly happened had you not gotten sober? Everything, man. Staying sober, for one. I'm not the guy who gets sober, dude. I was 100% one of the people who was going to die from this thing, and I, I didn't have to, you know. I think... You know, like when I take a guy through step one, I just like I thank God every day for that shit, man. Yeah. All the stuff yeah. I went through. I'm so grateful I don't have 10 years sober today because I have all this experience that I can use to be helpful, man. My family was reassembled. My parents talked to me again. I mean, they always did. Mm-hmm. But like for the first time, they were like not worried about me. Well, yeah, I know your dad. I had the rare opportunity to see the parent of somebody whose life was changed by AA in, in, you know, getting together with your dad and hearing how special it is for him when he comes down to visit you. And, and I said, John is sober by the grace of God. And, and I believe that. And I believe that's true for me and probably every other alcoholic who's able to claim contented sobriety. Yeah. But it sounds like that's what you have right now. And you're of service, you're of support to others. It's a beautiful thing. As a process of going through, we had a spiritual awakening as the result of going through the 12 steps. Like, why? Yeah. Why wait? You know, why dawdle? It was just like, I didn't care. I didn't care if it was done right. I just needed to do it. I did it how my sponsor told me to. And that's what I tell my guys to do. I'm like, hey, fast, chop, chop, faster we go through it, faster you're going to get some results, you're going to wake up. Well, this has really been great, John. I, I'm so glad that you and I got to spend like an hour and a half together. Yeah. And it seems like it's gone by in about five minutes because seeing you and remembering you from when I saw you when you were much, much younger uh, and hearing what you've gone through, a man like you and you, the level of experience that you have, both getting it and not getting it, and finally getting it over the years is so valuable to so many out there who are still struggling and suffering. And I honor you for doing that kind of service work. And for I'm, I'm grateful to God for saving your life so that you can help save others. And that's what this whole gig is about. So um, That's purpose, man. It, it is purpose, isn't it? If I'm ever sad or angry or depressed about something and we still get that way you know life still kind of craps on us but then it's like at the end of the day it's like i get to remember it's like dude like i can help when nobody else can these dudes who were just like me in a much worse spot who didn't think they were going to live to see tomorrow and didn't think ah this program doesn't work or i'm not going to be capable of doing it and when you tell them that you know how they feel, yeah. you know how they feel, don't you? Dude, it's just like, I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't know I could even get through the steps myself. God was all right. over that too. God was working. Yeah. That's why we get introduced to him real quick. Cause I mean, you're not writing a fourth step on your own power. Good God, <laughs> especially not outside of treatment. I didn't expect to get sober outside of treatment. That was wacky too. Yeah. Yeah. I was just a drug yeah. addict who walked on in there and, and just pounded out the work, man. What I've noticed about you in this uh, in the time we've spent together is you've got AA wisdom beyond your years, and it's it's a great gift. And I encourage you to always let that guide you. and And I I have to believe that that God put me and you together this evening for a purpose. And uh, I love you, and I I just am so glad that you and I were able to do this. You're a fine man, and. 
I wish you all the success with your program and your sponsees. Absolutely. Thank you, man. I wish you success as well. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. Thank you for this. I, I love this, man. This is great. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, John F., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs? We're on our way to a million podcast followers worldwide, and I appreciate your taking the time to listen. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of great help to more and more people. And if you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, it'll help others find us more easily. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.